This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge the ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey everybody, welcome back to Ozpol Snack Pod. We're back again with more news. Boy, there's just so much news. We're also the official podcast of the Ospol Shitposting Facebook group. Check it out if you like memes. My name's Zach Snack. With me, as always, is... Hey, I'm Noon. How's it going? Uh, I am... Yeah, good. I just... Uh, I winged it this week. You did. A little casual. Yeah, that's right. Look, I figure at this point, most of our listeners know who we are. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you don't, sorry. Um, and uh, hope this will probably not help you Entice you to stick around. the two of us at all. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, Noon, you had a special listener you wanted to shout out this week. Yeah, I wanted to shout out Shannon, uh, who is not one of our Patreon supporters, but would like to be, but doesn't like PayPal and therefore won't use Patreon. Um, or is it they don't like Patreon? Whatever. They don't they, like they, Patreon. Pa- okay. Patreon is cooked and we... Yes. I don't know if you know this, Noon, but we hate it. Yeah, we, oh, um, no, I, I am well aware. We, we looked at a few yeah. other options. There's Comrade, and there's another one I found recently called Kofi, which seems to be, like, less evil. But, uh, you know, we're already on this yeah, train com- now. Comradery isn't up yet, but when it is, uh, okay. I would like to... I'd consider do a switch. Yeah. moving over to it. Yeah, it's like a co-op version, cool. which is very cool. Well, anyway, Shannon has not been getting their uh, mandated bonus episode each month because they're not signed up to Patreon, so they don't get the link to the episodes. And they, re- completely regardless, out of the blue, like followed us up to be like, "Hey, we want to. I want to give you more money for your show." And they did. Uh, and so we finally sent them an RSS link. So Shannon, I hope you're enjoying all of the the bonus episodes. And thank you so much for um, really going the extra mile to like put in the effort to give us your money. So thanks very much. Yeah, that's so nice. Um, and if you, listener, want to hear bonus episodes, head over to Patreon. One US dollar a month will get you exactly that. I also want to shout out uh, Labour MP Tara- Terry Butler for following us on Instagram. Uh, presumably she's not listening to the show. But if you are, Terry, um, give us cushy staffer jobs, please. Yes. I know nothing about you and thus have little to no opinion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably time to get stuck into our entree, I guess. Yeah, let's do I'm it. Ready. What are we having I'm, today, I'm ready Zach? to chow down. We're just having some Barilaro Koala leftovers. Nice. Um, last week, people r- might remember that we had a little Barilaro Koala with a gooey center um, because we were talking about John Barilaro, the leader of the New South Wales Nationals, threatening to blow up the New South Wales Coalition over some koala legislation. And I just want to do a quick follow-up on that because I said last week that even though Barilaro claimed that he was doing it because he said it would be bad for farmers, I was like, nah, he's doing it because it's bad for developers. Developers. Real estate yeah. developers. Uh, and now it's been reported that Barilaro only ever raised one single complaint with the New South Wales planning minister about this legislation. Noon, hmm. do you want to guess whether that complaint was from either a farmer or a developer? Well, he's leader yes, of the Yes, that's right. It was Jeff McCloy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Sorry, <laughs> I was going to get there as well. It's fine, you know. Go on. <laughs> Jeff McCoy, who the Guardian describes as quote one of the Hunter region's most prominent developers, uh-huh. uh, who is also uh, famous for admitting to ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption, that he gave so much money to liberal politicians that he felt like quote a walking ATM. Um, That's the kind McCoy- of thing you should always say to ICAC. 
<laughs> Look, I'm so innocent. I'm admitting to many crimes. <laughs> um, I got strong, like, Clay Davis vibes from that. Um, totally. Yeah, court, yeah, yeah. Like that part where he's in the grand jury and he empties his pockets. Yeah. Yeah, and he's um, like, I walk down the street and I give it to the people in my community. <laughs> yeah. They just all happen to be liberal party politicians. Um uh, but yeah, McCloy sent Barilara a long briefing note complaining about the koala policy, saying, quote, the new koala SEPP can have significant of negative effect on farmers, natural resource industries, and the developers of residential, commercial, and industrial land. Uh-huh. He went on to claim that, quote, I don't do this for self-interest. I do it like I normally do because I've done my homework. Hmm. Hey, hey, come on. Stop pointing the finger at me. Just because this is very flagrantly in my financial self-interest doesn't mean that that's why I'm doing it. I'm just no, doing I've, it because I'm a well-read research yeah, like, legislation. I've done my homework. Like, presumably he means he's done the homework that shows he's going to lose money f- from it. Like, like I mean, what, he, what like, homework his is he talking thing about? is like, he's talking about, oh, the legislation actually isn't going to cover that much co- right, like right, right. actual koala habitat and really national parks are the real problem and blah, blah, blah. But I left it uh-huh, all out because uh-huh. it was boring. And bullshit. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I've got one other note here that just says grubby. And um, yeah, just, you know, right. politicians love to describe each other as grubby. Um, That's and because I'm it's a euphemism. Like, for the C word, because of Christopher Pine. Uh, in Parliament, he called someone, he dropped the C-bomb, you absolute cunt. And then someone was like, uh, you must withdraw or whatever. And then later his staffers were like, yes, yes, he said grub. Um, and so, like, basically, uh, like, obviously people called each other grubs before then. I think Keating used to do it a lot. But, like, yeah, I think since then it's become an explicit euphemism well, I just think that you do, it's one of those words you don't hear in any other context. People don't call each other grubby. It's only ever politicians, and usually yeah. state politicians, mm. talking about each other. Uh, Gladys has been describing some of the nationals' like conduct as grubby over the last few weeks. And Anyway, this whole thing between Barilaro and this developer just strikes me as being very grubby. It is. Um, and just before I move on from this, uh, as I was writing the notes from this, I got a little pop-up notification on my phone from the ABC letting me know that Barilaro has just decided to take four weeks of mental health leave. Uh, Do you have an opinion on that? No, I mean, like, I'm all in favor of people taking time off, especially politicians. Like, the less time they're running the country, the less damage they're going to do, right? (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I also think the specifics of who this is and why he's actually taking this time off aside, it's probably good to normalize like public figures taking time off for mental health, but also presumably it's because he doesn't want to get dunked on more. So like, uh, yeah, I <laughs> mean, sure. After he it. torpedoed his colleagues uh, attempt to get pre-selection for the mm. in a by-election Barilaro after like leaking text to the te- telegraph where he like called his colleague a cunt was like, yeah, I am now going to take leave for family reasons. Yeah. So, but I think you make a good point about normalizing uh, taking leave for mental health. And it has been funny watching people like Mark Latham being like, wishing you all the best for your mental health recovery. Uh, I feel like you've literally never cared about someone's mental health in your life, bro. But no, and like, as I say, I'm, I'm, I have no reason to think Barilaro is actually doing this for his mental health and is just doing it to avoid being in public for a, a couple of weeks. But like, you know, whatever. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's likely. Um, and uh, just a, a little uh, secondary entree that I had prepared uh-huh, here. Uh-huh. Um, 
is, uh, you know, we talked a lot about Barilaro being national leadership material because yes. he just was capable... He's so capable wildly of imagining... and explosively incompetent. Exactly. He's, he's capable of imagining fuck-ups on, on, you know, on the national scale. Uh, but we all know that his inspiration, mentor, and muse is big Barnaby himself. Mm, and mm-hmm, uh, Barnaby mm-hmm. was in the news this week for doing some truly nationals leadership material type Absolutely. shit. Um, he did a joke official opening of a bridge on the edge of his electorate, the Tabulum Bridge, which crosses the uh, Clarence River, which is like a long-awaited state inf- infrastructure project, completely funded by the state government, nothing to do with the federal government sure, at sure. all. And he like posted this very weird video to facebook which he doesn't post any other kind of video to be fair Um, yeah yeah there was that one of him like drunkenly yelling at the clouds yeah um this has quite a different energy to that video um (laughs) i haven't watched it yet uh, so yeah i've i got new not to watch it instead um why don't we listen to a little clip of that cool watching the television last night and I noted that we've got cars going across the new bridge. $48 million. $48 million. And a new bridge just for the New England to get them in there. But they're missing one thing. There's nobody opening it. And I believe that you've got to work with the state fellas and they're always saying we should work closely together. So I'm going to help them out today. This is something that you guys don't have to worry about doing. I'm going to do it for you. So it's okay. Uh, listeners, just imagine me as that gif of the the surgeon taking off his mask and saying, "But why?" That's how I feel. That's about Ryan Reynolds that clip. for reference. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Strong but why vibes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just want to make it clear that you know I didn't do anything to that clip. Yeah. Yeah. That you know? that music and stuff was all in there. Yeah, and the like. If you watch the full thing, which you can find on his Facebook page, that music repeats like five or six times during the video, with just like a couple seconds gap in between each repetition. Like, it's got truly Lynchian energy. Um, yeah. Anyway, like he upset a bunch of people with this video. Um, I'm going to quote here from a Josh Butler article in the New Daily. He says, "Quote: The mayor of Cryogal Council, Danielle Mulholland, in the rural New South Wales Northern Rivers region." said she had been inundated with angry calls from constituents who thought they had missed the official opening of the Tabulum Bridge. There was a fair bit of community distress for people who felt they weren't invited, she told the New Daily. Um, this have just you ever been to a bridge opening, Zach? Do you have any urge to go to, like, a, a, a ribbon-cutting of the new boulevard somewhere? Or, like... Well, there's a, the, you know, I've got another quote, like, it's an interesting question, and I have a sure. quote here from the state MP for Lismore, which actually contains the bridge. Sure, uh, so the people MP who might have Janelle. actually been involved to some extent in it being yes. built. Yeah. Uh, this uh, Labour state MP called Janelle Safin, she says, I'm guessing he meant no harm, just, a, just as a bit of a giggle, but these openings are really important to the local community. They have a sense of ownership and investment in the project. To have an unofficial opening without recognising any of those communities involved, it's a little thoughtless. Um, so it's like yeah you know a bunch of people were just kind of confused and then vaguely kind upset. of wanted to be there yeah yeah and it's like it's clearly not that big of a deal it's just classic barnaby shit like yep. oh, i'm just having yep. a bit of a luck and also <laughs> completely <laughs> failing to consider my role in parliament and also offending the constituents <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, a, like right yeah, that's the trifecta yeah anyway I thought that was pretty funny. It is pretty funny. All right, so I think we should move on now to... Positivity. 
corner. We've actually got two corners here, so I, I don't know if that's like a, a a box or something. I'm not sure. Two. What's the shape with two points? A line? Some no. Somewhere like between a, between a line a, and a an open and rectangle a, and a triangle. Well, okay, we're already <laughs> like five minutes over time, so I'm just going to keep going. So the an first almond. one. <laughs> The first one is that the federal government is giving $5 million to the AAP, the Australian Associated Press. Uh, And the AAP is a not-for-profit media alliance, so it's called a newswire or a news agency. And basically what they do is they do a bunch of, like, on-the-ground reporting that they then sell to media organizations who subscribe to it. And Mm -hmm. so that's why, like, you listeners and I have probably never read an AAP article, but when you read about the same story in a bunch of different papers, you see the same, the same quotes or the same photos in each article from different newspapers. That's because it's normally from the AAP who have actually been like in the courtroom doing the reporting and then pass the information on to their subscribed news services. Um, and the AAP was actually sold off earlier this year to a group of, quote, philanthropists. We've been thinking about doing an episode on philanthropy, uh, but I'm not going to get into it right now. Um, But it's interesting, the main one of whom was a News Corp guy, uh, but it's despite that, I think we should still feel reasonably positive about it, because according to the former AAP chairman Campbell Reid, who was also a News Corp executive, he told staff at the time that he didn't want to subsidize a breaking news service for their competitors, including newer plays like Guardian Australia, which is an AAP subscriber. So Mm. this guy who was the chairman of the AAP but also worked for News Corp was like, no, 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 we need to fuck up the AAP so the Guardian can't get good news. Um, And so that's why I think we should be glad that these philanthropists, even though the main one is a News Corp guy, has like put this money into, uh, has has bought AAP again um, because it's clearly directly against the interests of the Australian. Because they were basically about to fold, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And they they like... basically did fold and were bought for a dollar by this consortium of philanthropists and are now, like, reopening with reduced staff. Mm. Uh, but now the federal government is also giving this $5 million, which admittedly is not heaps. But in my opinion, I think keeping the AAP going is worth more than the actual dollar amount. Like, even if they mm. end up losing half their staff, which obviously is going to be awful and will reduce the capacity and a whole lot of stuff, having the AAP just, like, continue to exist is really good for the Australian media environment um, mm. because the AP is really a silent workhorse that makes sure a lot of the other sources that like retail outlets of media have good information, good photos. Um, and yeah, they're just generally like an important part of the media environment. So yeah, it's a nice little positivity corner. It's not huge. That, but it's definitely that is something. positive. Yeah. That's yeah. one point of the armor. What's the other point? Uh, So, this is a completely unrelated story, but Clive Palmer's United Australia Party has been served a notice by the Electoral Commission that they're going to be deregistered because they don't have enough members, which is 500 members, uh, which is pretty spectacular. Uh, And, like, there's not really a whole lot to this story. The UAP slash the PUP, as it used to be known, uh, was always, like, a... A, I mean, a fake yeah, like a completely astroturfed exactly. like, yeah. political organization made to represent the interests of one person. How could they possibly not have enough members to be exactly. considered? Yeah. Where, what happened to all those meme lords who played Clive Palmer's mobile game? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. They're actually. all too should, young to register. That's They're what. now friendly Geordie stands <laughs> voting for the SDA reps. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, after uh, they had their big uh, court battle, they had to pick sides. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Friendly Jordy's got all the 12-year-olds in the divorce. (laughs) 
another little aspect of the story is that uh, Clive just donated $2 million from his mining company, Mineralogy, to the United Australia Party, which is very funny because it's going to, like, stop existing in a couple of weeks. Like, he'll, 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 he'll get the money back, so it's not actually, like, any, but it's just, like, have you not realized how failed this particular failed project is, Clive? Oh, I'm sure there's some fucking shady tax reason Absolutely. behind that. Absolutely. It's classic Clive Palmer shell game with my money. Oh, there's no way I could possibly pay my workers. Pay my workers. Look, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing in my account. Please don't look at the campaign financing for my political party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Plus, it occurs to me that, like, although obviously it's very illegal, he doesn't care about that, and, like, $2 million could probably buy 500 members. Yeah. Seems like he's just sort of let it die, kind of like Titanic 2 or Jurassic Park 2. Mm. Or any of his other extremely <laughs> sensible projects. <laughs> Thanks, Noon. All right. Um, all right. Uh, now you're going to take us through our First Nations story for the week, yeah? Yeah. And the title I put in the notes here was a whole lot of fucking cultural genocide. Uh, and, you know, we've been covering the Rio Tinto, Jukan Gorge story pretty regularly for the last couple of months. Um, but this week, I just wanted to kind of do a roundup of some of the other horrifying shit that our mining industry is doing, destroying indigenous uh, land and, and culture. Mm. Um, because it's not just Rio. They are the ones who've got in loud trouble about it recently. But there's, like, yeah, three other things that I wanted to touch on. So one is BHP, another Australian mining company. They ha- are set to destroy 40, quote, significant Aboriginal sites in Western Australia. Uh, and they've just Jesus. been, like... Uh, going around talking to the media about how they're super proud about how they figured out a way not to destroy 10 of those 40. And they're trying really hard to pretend that therefore they're not like Rio Tinto. Uh, But also they clearly do not give a shit. Um, According to their Western Australia heritage manager, David Bunting, he said that they were aware that the Bunjima people didn't want any of their 40 sites disturbed before the application to destroy those sites was lodged. So the traditional owners were like, do not fuck with any of these sites and they were like cool cool hey government can we fuck with 40 of those sites 40 of them and now they're like and hey, we'll treat 10 of them nicely exactly yeah and like who knows what that not destroying means maybe that means where they're just going to build a road through it and drive trucks past it and the diesel fumes will destroy all the petroglyphs but they won't actually blow them up directly or like you know there's a lot of ways that they can not destroy that's, those 10 sites sounds pretty progressive to me desecrating them yeah so that's one or 40 oh yeah and, and the other thing is that um, the West Australia Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Ben Wyatt, approved BHP's expansion into these sites three days after the destruction of Jukan Gorge made headlines around the world. And so, like, Fucking clearly, B- uh, like, probably BHP lodged those applications before that news story, but, like, they already knew that the traditional owners didn't want it to happen, and clearly the minister is, like, more than happy to encourage these companies to destroy these these sites. All right. Number two, Fortescue Metals, owned by Zach's favourite philanthropist, Twiggy Forrest, has, quote, angered shareholder activists by rejecting their resolution for a moratorium on the desecration of Aboriginal heritage sites on the basis that the physical copy of the documents it was printed on arrived too late to be considered at the annual general meeting. Oh, fuck you. Yeah, and the digital documents had been lodged, and the reason it was delayed is because we're in the middle of a fucking coronavirus pandemic, and it's kind of hard to get couriers. Um... So there were two He's proposals. He's just the, the absolute epitome of mining industry hypocrisy, this guy. With one hand pretending to care so much about the well-being of First absolutely. Nations people and with the other doing absolutely everything in his power to ignore anybody putting any kind of checks or balances on his destructive yeah. of First Nations yeah. land. Like, come on. Yeah. 
So there were two pro- proposals here that Fortescue rejected. One was to adopt the moratorium on activities that would, quote, disturb, destroy, or desecrate Aboriginal heritage sites. Uh, and the second was to disclose its lobbying on cultural heritage issues by any industry association of which it's a member. So that's like if the Minerals Council of Australia is trying to lobby the government about how to deal with Aboriginal sites, for example, Fortescue mm. would have to release any information about that. Fortescue said this, The moratorium proposed by people unfamiliar with the West Australian mining industry is not supported by Fortescue as it would disempower local Aboriginal people in the Pilbara and limit the positive contribution the mining industry is making to the state and national economies at a time when it's needed most. It's the same old right fucking off. bullshit every time. Yeah. This, oh, no, no. We, it's because we care too much. We're giving Indigenous people too much money. We couldn't possibly stop. So that's pretty disgusting. And the third one of these, not actually a mining one, but it's still absolutely like a bird of a feather with these other ones. Uh, Parks Australia has been charged under the Northern Territory Sacred Sites Act with damaging an area near Gunlum Falls in the Kakadu National Park. The Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority says that Parks Australia built a walking track uh, over a sacred site at Gunlum, quote, without permission, close to a ceremonial feature of the sacred site that is restricted according to Aboriginal tradition. And if found guilty, Parks mm. will face a maximum fine of uh, just over three hundred thousand dollars. And you know, I think that's it's, really disappointing to hear. Yeah, I, but I think it's really telling. I mean, obviously, what Parks did is bad, and I don't mean to downplay that, but it's significantly less bad than what these other two are doing and fucking no one is talking about fining rio or bhp or fortescue um but the government agency that like looks after national parks they got to fucking pay out and like obviously they should again to be super clear i'm not saying we should absolve parks of guilt here i've included in this story specifically because it's exactly the same kind of cultural genocide shit that these mining companies are doing but i just think it is telling about where the priorities of the law lie and where the priorities of the country lie that the mining companies who profit exclusively from the destruction and theft of native uh culture and land and people just get off scot fucking free totally all right yeah that's that's the end of my rant about that um shall we go on to a round of coronas hey man i got some more beers oh i don't know if i can drink anymore i'm feeling kind of sick no come on we're having another round of coronas yeah more coronas and yeah i feel a little bit bad that it's like every week pretty much we're talking about uh vic lockdown but i mean it is news it is that's what's happening in the country that's what's happening to you and me that's definitely what's happening to us yeah um yeah, it's been a, uh, more Vic Lockdown chat this week, uh, kind of building on what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. But So I wanted to talk about an article that was published in the Saturday paper last week by Osman Faruqi, um, who is a journalist who I think is basically a good journo but should probably stay off Twitter. Um, and he published this uh, article in the Saturday paper based on a leaked video conference call with Brett Sutton, the, the chief health officer of Victoria, from the beginning of September – uh, which was a like a video conference where Sutton was addressing uh, hundreds of doctors. And sort of the main takeaways from this are basically that Vic's, Victoria's contact tracing system was completely unprepared for the outbreak. Mm. And Sutton seems to basically reckon that that is largely down to the way that the government privatized that uh, contact tracing response. So at the start of the pandemic, Victoria's contact tracing team was just 14 people. For comparison, there's now yeah. a, around uh, over 2,600 people that are now part of the contact tracing. <laughs> it's a pretty big difference. It's pretty fucking big difference. Um, and when it started out, they were using a paper and pen system for contact tracing. And 
you know, still case, some case notifications are coming through by fax, like some really yeah. uh, outdated technology going on here. And obviously with these like handwritten uh, paper and pen systems, mm. you get lots of problems, misspellings of names, uh, you know, or incorrect no, phone numbers or addresses. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, th- this when the, when the second wave kicked off here in Victoria, some of these COVID test results were taking almost like 10 yeah. days to turn yeah. around. So, which is so long for somebody who's tested positive to have to spread the virus to other yep. people before they figure out that they're supposed to self-isolate. But so to beef up the the response, the Victorian government started issuing like a shitload of private contracts mm. to just heaps of different companies, over $100 million worth of um, contracts. There were like 80 different these- contracts or something, I think, to um, some of them, there were multiple contracts to the same companies, but yeah. Yeah, a huge amount, and um, all for all sorts of different stuff, like from call centers to like health data analysis companies to paying IBM for software to like digitally read the handwritten yeah, notes made yeah. by contact traces and stuff. They also they gave a contract to Hello World, the extremely yeah, for, corrupt for call flight center. center that's owned by the Liberal Party and that corruptly gave Liberal Party members illegal crime donations uh, to get them to do yeah call center work. Cool. Weird choice. It is a weird choice. Maybe um, Daniel Andrews looking for a job in the Liberal Party when he leaves. Uh, I've got a quote here from uh, from the article. Victoria's reliance on outsourcing stands in contrast with the other states, particularly New South Wales, which has conducted its contact tracing in-house using public servants and with support from the Australian Defence Force. Uh, and later in the article, uh, Faruqi goes on to say that do- doctors had told him that they feel that this is indicative of how underfunded the Victorian public health unit was even mm. before the pandemic. Mm. So, yeah, you know, it's it comes down to to a funding issue in large part. But, I mean, response times are now better with Victorian contact tracing, but it can still take around five days to turn around a case. Mm. Um, and... <laughs> The article also kind of explains that the department's numbers about this stuff are potentially kind of dodgy. Got another quote here. According to the DHHS, more than 90% of positive COVID-19 cases are being interviewed by tracers within 24 hours of the department receiving notifications of their case, and 99% of close contacts are notified within 48 hours of being identified. But another doctor said the metrics used by the department include only people who actually answer the phone and with the bulk of calls huh. being made by some subcontracted call centers, such as Hello World, close contacts are regularly not picking up calls from unknown numbers, and the voicemails left by tracers don't offer a return number. Wow. So, I mean, I never answer unknown numbers, and yeah, I'm somebody, yeah. like, on the scale of You don't even have, like, social anxiety. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I am somebody who actually doesn't mind speaking on the phone in general. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not going to ask for a fucking unknown number. Yeah. And it's, you know... Like, no return numbers, just, it's wild to me. Huge yep. holes. Um, and, uh, you know, there was Sutton basically said in this call, the contracts, the contact tracing system is an unwieldy patchwork of private and public groups, and that it, it, it was just too difficult to be managed centrally. And until recently, Andrews has been quite vocal about, no, we, we need to have, like, a all of this contact tracing needs to be centrally stewarded by the government, um, and now, basically now is sort of only just starting to shift from like a centralized model to one where there are regional contact contact tracing hubs who focus on you know, separate communities, which is something that they've already been doing in New South Wales. So the kind of biggest upshot, I think, from this at the moment 
is that contact tracing for healthcare workers is really is not nearly good enough. Yeah, and for we're sure. we're we're at a point now where it looks like the hard lockdown has kind of pushed the numbers down to about as far as they'll go. But there's this what's being described as the tail of the second wave in the media, right. which is basically happening in high risk. Uh, areas basically in aged care and in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Last week, 69% of cases that were recorded in Victoria were either healthcare workers or their close contacts. Yeah, right. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it throws up some interesting questions for me about I've been broadly supportive of like the lockdown measures, but mm. it seems like we're getting to this point where I don't know if that's the right stick to be beating this issue with. I mean, w- what do you make of all this? This seems like yet another example of a very poorly run department fucking up. I don't really it's know like about this underfunded issue. from the get go. Exactly. Yeah. And but I mean, I think what it says to me really is that th- it's more proof that this focus on individual responsibility is totally mm. misguided. And mm. Andrews is still running these like rule breakers line. There's been a, a new cluster in the southeast of Melbourne. Of people who are a cluster outside of the health of the uh, healthcare system, but like a, a vast majority of the problem is mm. in healthcare, mm. and like there's huge holes in the way that we're managing outbreaks within the healthcare system, um, and yet all of the kind of like public rhetoric and focus of policy, etc., still seems to be focusing on. Yeah. People breaking the rules, individuals not following the restrictions. And I know I've harped on about this, but it matters because this kind of rule breaker rhetoric is justification for what Andrews and his government is trying to do this week, which is the other thing I wanted to talk about, which are these intense new detention powers that they're trying to get through uh, Victorian Parliament. So there's a new bill which is expected to pass uh, this week on Thursday, which expands. Uh, detention powers to work safe inspectors and PSOs, protective services officers, who who mm, we've uh, mm. talked about previously on this show, um, and being like dangerously like, even less trained police. Yes, they they get to carry guns after twelve weeks of training. But so these new powers are going to give these authorized officers and including cops the power to detain people with COVID or the close contacts of people with COVID if the authorized officer thinks that they might breach health restrictions in future. They don't actually have to have breached the restrictions. Um, and in tandem with this, the the PSOs would be deployed just kind of like more broadly across Melbourne CBD and regional mm. Victoria. Um, which is something that's been on the cards for a while. Like they suggested it months ago and we spoke about it then, which I think yep, is the last yep. time we spoke about PSOs. Um, but, uh, you know, this is the bill that looks like it's going to actually make that happen. Uh, I've got a quote here from The Age. The Age has reported a government spokesman is indicating that the new measures could be applied to conspiracy theorists who refuse to self-isolate or to severely drug-affected or mentally impaired people who do not have the capacity to quarantine. I mean... They're specifically saying we're doing yeah. this so that we can target and detain vulnerable people. Mm. Um, that is what that says to me. Um, and just like over the last week, Vic Pol has not been doing a good job. No. Like, you know, between their extremely heavy-handed response to the lockdown protests... Um, and uh, that vir- that video going viral of a man being rammed by a fucking cop car and then having his head stomped on by cops. Mm. This is just, I don't know, not the week to be ramming through legislation that gives police even more powers 
especially to detain people on the basis of what they think they might do. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to justify this, but you, uh, you've kind of lent on that what they think they might do thing a couple times. Police can already arrest people for what they think they might do. Um, you can be arrested if uh, an officer thinks that you have are or will commit a crime. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that that's different with PSOs. So that's probably what the main difference is. That's expanding this power to even less qualified, even more dangerous thugs. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, it's this like focus on expanding police power and this like mm. sort of castle response, which just given what we just discussed with the contact tracing just really doesn't seem to be the issue to me. Yeah, um, yeah. And like, <clears throat> I've, it's just extra fucking frustrating because, like, you know, we've been broadly supportive of Andrews on this show. And like, you know, that's how I have felt up until this point. But I feel it's becoming increasingly difficult to uh, thread the needle between of like being critical of the Andrews government without being hashtag dictator Dan, but also mm-hmm. supportive of the stuff that is working without being hashtag stand with Dan. Yeah, like, yeah. like both of those sides are, you know, have this, uh, extremely cynicism is the real centerism, Zach. Thank you. Um, and the, the, I feel like the ground is getting the, that I'm trying to stand on is getting fucking smaller and smaller yeah, and chipped away yeah. at either side because like he, this is some hashtag dig data Dan shit. I hate to say yeah, it, yeah. but you know, I mean, his response has been overall, Far more punitive than it should have been. The lockdown, the the mm, tower the lockdowns were fucked, yep. um, and the way that Vicpol has been responding to these lockdown protests has been totally, just totally uncalled for. Yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, on the other side, you've got these uh, labor hacks cheering on the cops shutting down these protests, mm. which is just a fucking massive mistake. You mm. should never cheer on the the cops for shutting down a protest, pretty much ever in my books. There's like I just don't. It's so short sighted. How can you not? see that that shit is going to come back on you yeah. i mean just this week in new south wales cops were shutting down a protest by sydney university students over the various fuck things that are happening in tertiary education mm. which we've touched on before we'll probably talk about in a little bit more detail next week but these students had organized this protest specifically to follow new south wales rules you know they were mm. seeing groups of less than 19 and technically each group was protesting like a different separately thing. yeah yeah but the cops broke them up and fined them each like a thousand bucks anyway mm. Mm. like you know, it's just, uh, uh, yeah, people who uh, position themselves or claim to be nominally, like, progressive or even slightly left being like, haha, yeah, look yeah, at yeah, those cops. Yeah. nongs getting shut down by riot cops. It's just like... Yeah. And, and, like, we kind of mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we had our extended waffle about police versus conspiracy theorists, but, like, someone who believes in the Magna Carta is very different than like a white supremacist gang, yes. like the UPF or whatever. And like, yes. this is a lot more pathetic and a lot less dangerous and a lot less likely to influence public policy and a lot less likely to result in like literal murders than Nazis. So yeah, I, I just wanted to like mention like there might be a very occasional time to cheer on cops shutting down hard right white supremacist protests, but these like, Soft right libertarian nutter protests, I think, is not that. No, and we know that the cops, in fact, don't shut down those hard right. No, protests. they don't. Anyway, of course, they yeah, provide yeah. protection for them. They yes. show up as basically like bodyguards for the white supremacists. High five them and say, "This is cool because you aren't threatening police power in any way." Unlike these 
I don't know if there's like a PC way to describe it, but kooks out in the street basically saying that wearing a mask is a violation of their civil liberties or whatever. But you, I don't think you could even broadly describe the anti-lockdown protests as right-wing. I don't think that they're nearly as politically coherent as that. I sure, think that there's a fair. massive yeah, disparity of... A massive disparity. Yeah, a, a massive diversity Which really of showed up there. at uh, Tom Tanneke's reporting on the protests. I think it was a month or so ago. Yeah. Um, but, like, people that just, like, but- believed all sorts of different shit and, like... It's exactly. really interesting, but, and like some of it was right wing, some of it was just like random conspiracy theories that tend to kind of lean that way, or you know, other people were like, yeah. "I'm worried about my baby having asthma," you know, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And they're not like uh, the other thing that Tom pointed out is they're not like racially or politically homogenous. You know, it's That's not actually yeah. accurate to characterize them as just white people. And we yep. saw that there was that anti-lockdown protest in Broadmeadows just a couple of weeks ago, mm, which was mm. uh, like not white people. And I, you know, I th- so it's much more complicated, I mm. think, and messy than people maybe give it credit for. Um, but the other thing I think is interesting about it is that they are basically—it's like an anti-political movement. Mm. And I think that it—it it, um, it, you know, the when the Victorian Liberal Party tries to encourage this hashtag dictator Dan discourse, they seem to think that they're mobilizing some kind of right-wing base for you know for themselves but i don't think they understand that these people are just fucking anti-government they don't think that they can vote their way out of this in you know sure QAnon in america is explicitly a pro-trump movement but here they don't have an anti-government candidate that they can rally behind and so i think it's uh, i I think that it's (laughs) i think it's totally uh misguided that for like the establishment parliamentarian right wing to think that they can corral mm. these anti-lockdown protests into some kind of uh you know right wing political movement that they can use in their own favor um and just on that note uh i i just wanted to end this section with a little treat because this shit should have been a, a free kick for the victorian liberals right like the totally. fact that they haven't been able to organize any kind of coherent political opposition to Daniel Andrews, like when he's doing a whole bunch of quite cooked shit, just shows how completely ineffectual they are. And there is no one more ineffectual among them than everybody's favorite sack of uncooked chicken nuggets, Tim Smith, who has tried to do a little troll post on Facebook and got completely um, destroyed. He completely neglected to check himself and has ended up completely wrecking himself. Um, he posted uh, a graphic. It says, should Daniel Andrews resign? And it's got each of the little uh, Facebook reacts, the like, the heart, the ha-ha, the wow, the teardrop, and the angry. And under each of them says yes. So like any, in theory, any react that you click is a vote for Daniel vote, Andrews yes. to resign. Yeah. However, Smith neglected one thing. <laughs> Facebook recently added a new React, the Care oh, React. It's just so beautiful. It it's like oh. amazing. And it's a good couple I mean, of months as well. Like it's not like they, it's not like he got surprised by the Pride React just coming back for a weekend or something. <laughs> this shit has been a permanent feature of Facebook for like three for or four ages. months now. Yeah, seriously. 
It, there's been a whole bunch of Facebook discourse about the Carry Act. It's but true. Yeah. Um. I mean, I guess I don't need to tell you guys what happened, but, but uh, uh, I, I took a screen cap last night. I'm sure the numbers. I, are I even just had funnier a look now. now. Yeah. What are the numbers, Noon? Tell me. Uh. So there are forty thousand Carry Acts to six thousand everything else. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> which is just incredible. Uh, like, oh, that the, is a is, ratio. That is a oh, serious ratio. The um, most beautiful just, own goal. I personally, for some reason, I don't like care reacting, um, but I, you know, I went for it this time. I thought it was worth <laughs> it to participate in this moment of history. Oh, and that reminds me, that was um, the this week's You Fucked Up. Uh, thank uh, you, Tim Smith, for fucking up yet put, again. For, for fucking up and putting a little treat, kind of to giving us a little treat to button that otherwise pretty cooked story. Mm-hmm. Uh, noon, I believe now, if, if my notes don't lead me astray, that it is time for shit post of the week. Yeah, so we've got uh, two memes that I wanted to shout out today. Uh, the first one is a, a, an honorable mention, and this goes to. A YouTube user called Abrahamilton who made a video that was published on The Simpsons Against Liberals, which is a, a wonderful page. Um, and Abrahamilton, uh, all of his videos are the same. They're short, deep fakes uh, of Australian politicians that look like they're saying Simpsons quotes. And the one that that got published this week is immigrants, and it's the uh, the line from the, the Simpsons, you know, where they're like. The uh, problem with immigrants is they come to this country and they don't even learn themselves the language. Um, and it's just got this great moment of Tony Abbott being Barney Gumble and be like, rah, 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 rah. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll pop a link in the show notes. It's it's really very funny. Uh, watch all of the other videos. They're all like 20 seconds. It's great. Thank, thank you for your impressions, Noon. That's okay. Uh, you could just get me to do deepfakes if you wanted, listeners. <laughs> just just saying. Um but the uh, shitpost of the week this week is going to a layup assist to Effie Elizabeth Eldon on the Ospol shitposting Facebook group. Um, and this, they, they posted this image with the caption, I feel like the graphic designer might have screwed up here. And this is an image published by a guy called Rohit Singh, who's running for council. I couldn't find where he's running for council, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, presumably down in Point Cook where he lives. And this image is him uh, with a, a background of like some biohazards suits that's kind mm-hmm. of like grayed out and over the top of that is this text that says let's make victoria covid and then underneath that in smaller text it says free community for more info visit rohitsing.com.au forward slash blog and it's very funny obviously it's saying let's make COVID, victoria covid free community but like it just really looks like he's saying let's make victoria covid um with his little uh, smiling face with his little it. smiling face yeah he looks like he could be a counselor um but i went to his website and i found this one quote that i thought was excellent rohit doesn't believe in making promises but making an impact through his planned actions uh, i don't really have a leadership on that. that we can believe in as if you ask me <laughs> i think it's time to make victoria covid yeah here here but one rohit Okay, um, so with that, I think it's time to move on to our main course for the week. And this week we're having a guest-led red curry Well, we think Zach suggested a grass-fed red curry uh, but I have the opinion that our food pun titles are worse uh, when they're just a pun and don't actually explain what the subject matter is at all. So, we have but- terrible SEO. 
It's true. Yeah, yeah. If you know Thanks. anything about SEO, please help us. Hook us up. Yeah, it would really, it, it really would help a lot. Um, yeah, so this is about uh, the federal government announced a gas-led recovery. This week, gas-led recovery? Grass-fed Gas recovery? recovery. Uh, yeah. I yeah. see what we did there. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so uh, the government's coronavirus committee <laughs> slash advisory board is led by this guy, Neville Power, who's formerly of Fortescue Metals, who we mentioned earlier, Smorgan Energy, uh, sorry, Smorgan Steel and Strike Energy, and there are other members of this council with fossil fuel links too. And so we've been waiting for the government slash their COVID advisory committee to launch some kind of pro-gas thing for a while. And it's just a premium example of the government actively trying to kill people for the sake of profits, uh, which is a theme that I really enjoy on this show. Maybe enjoy is the wrong word, but like it comes up constantly. Uh, it does. And I think it's worth it's pointing a out theme. explicitly in those terms of killing people for profits every time it comes up because most people don't frame it in that way when they really should be. Um, yeah, well, it's just so fun. they couldn't make it any more apparent than uh, yeah than uh, than appointing Nev Power to the to lead the coronavirus recovery committee. Like, exactly, he's literally an energy like a fossil fuel guy. <laughs> That's right, and like the plan is to quote kickstart the economy by investing in gas mining, gas power plants, and gas export. Uh, oh. But the the actual like stimulation of the economy thing is bullshit uh morrison knows that fossil fuels is a dying industry and will fully die in this country unless he props it up and that's what this policy is for and the coronavirus is just giving cover for it um and it's being framed as a response to that but as we know the economy's been faltering for a long time and morrison and co have been trying to do this for ages and just as an example of this in august last year in the middle of the fucking bushfires uh scott morrison did an interview in channel nine where he said he wanted to revoke all restrictions on gas exploration and extraction for example victoria's onshore gas mining ban which uh has in fact been somewhat rescinded Mm -hmm. um and I'm not even really going to talk about this in relation to the coronavirus economic situation. Uh, it's basically just a lie to cover for this drastic expansion of fossil fuel industry. Um, and in practice, is totally unrelated and also unlikely to help the economy very much. So for that reason, I'm not really going to talk about the corona economics aspect of this. Um, and in fact, I don't even no. want to talk about the government's whole plan that much because there's not a huge amount of detail. And I think this time might be better spent talking about gas as a fuel and its role in our power system and how it affects climate change. Yeah, well, that's what I asked Noon to do because I see this uh, this gas-led recovery shit coming up a lot and we've spoken a little bit on, in the past uh, on this climate show about... episode and elsewhere, yeah. Yeah, and about specifically how gas is just like an extremely financially bad option for Australia mm. specifically, mm. Uh, aside from just be, you know being another fucking fossil fuel... Um, but when I read about a lot of this stuff in the paper, there's a lot of terms getting thrown around that I just straight up don't know what they mean or what people are talking about. Sure. And I've asked Noon to kind of do a little bit of a Noon in the Dunce Please explain, gas edition. No, I won't. Okay. I will not. <laughs> cool. I said Noon in the Dunce gas right. edition, and that's what dunce. I meant. I'm into that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so gas me up, Noon. Yeah, yeah. So I will just very briefly talk about the government's plan because there is one interesting bit of it. But um, yeah, so uh, there's not a huge amount of detail here. There's going to be more over the next coming months, unfortunately. But uh, so far, this is what they've said. So they're going to set new gas supply targets with state and territories and enforce potential, quote, 
use it or lose it requirements on gas licenses. Unclear exactly on what that means, but basically if a company owns a gas license and they don't extract the gas, the gas license will revert to someone else who will extract it. Uh, cool free market I hate there. this already got, so got, much. Yeah, okay. Here, this one. You're going to love this one, Zach. Uh, uh, unlocking five key gas basins, starting with the Beetaloo Basin in the Northern Territory and the North Bowen and Galilee Basin in Queensland. Sound good? You like that one? Five new basins. That's a lot of basins. That's way too many. Ba- you should be... No new basins. <laughs> I don't That's want any new... new basins. That's our new catchphrase. No new basins. I, know, I feel like this is going to sound almost silly, but there's something just so depressing about literally hearing... Like, just having it laid out, like... Not just in an abstract sense that we're going to do more fossil fuel mining, but being like, no, no, no. We're actually going to go and start destroying more, yeah, like, we're going to go and actively go in and destroy more indigenous land in Mm. order to create money from an industry that is killing the earth. Uh, Sorry. Like I said, it's not exactly a a, a fresh insight. It's just No, but it's just like sometimes each new detail adds up to you being like, wow. I still think that thing I thought before, but harder now. <laughs> yeah, I'm now I'm really feeling it. So they're going to avoid any supply shortfall in the gas market with new agreements with the three East Coast LNG exporters. Uh, they're going to put some money into gas-related science. They're going to identify priority pipelines and infrastructure and various market reforms and regulations. Mostly not regulations, mostly deregulations, but some regulations. Um, LNG uh, being liquid natural gas? Yes, sorry, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, cool. And so that's the normal way that it's exported. And, like, you've probably seen, like, gas canisters, that's LNG. Um, but the kind it's you put obviously in much uh, bigger. taxis. Huh? In taxis? The kind, yeah. Are they all gas powered? Yeah, huh. they were. Right. Huh, there you go. Uh, the, only, <laughs> the only one of these uh, points that I think is particularly interesting um, is that, quote, the government will step in if the private sector doesn't invest in a new gas plant by April. Um, and this one is significant because it's actually very, very, very bad for the large companies that might want to build a power plant that the government is trying to like coerce into building a power plant. So it sort of goes exactly against what the government is trying to achieve. And again, this probably isn't like super relevant to our listeners, but like uh, just to explain that slightly, the the free market flourishes when governments set consistent rules and then don't change them. So if you say, if no one builds a gas power plant, then we will, that makes it really hard for companies to plan. Because, like, maybe in a couple years, if, like, the gas plant that they've built isn't the one that the government wanted, or if it doesn't count, or if it's not big enough or whatever, and they've got it half built, and the government's like, okay, cool, well, we're just going to build one now, then now suddenly their plant the company is building is going to be significantly less profitable because it's got government competition. Uh, So... Yeah, and there's also been, like, that fucking dude from Atlassian who's, like, the ABC's favorite Australian Elon Musk bro, tech bro Mm. guy. Uh, He will unfortunately come into the story again. He's offering to build a non-gas power plant that will fill this thing, but he's worried that the government's going to be like, no, 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 that doesn't count, fuck off, and build it anyway. So, like, this is actually, like, making it harder for companies to invest in gas mining, which is very weird. Okay, so that's but the actual... Like, is it as yeah. bad financially 
like we know that the economics of building a new coal-fired plant, for example, uh, like just don't make sense at all. That it's an yeah. a- absolutely going to lose money and very quickly become a stranded asset. Yes. Uh, do, uh, is building a new gas plant as bad economically? Uh, it's less bad, but yes, it still is. Some uh, of the same principles still apply. Some of the same principles. You still need fuel, unlike renewable power so you've always got operating costs uh and also they've got a really long lead time and like high opening costs so like um that means that the the plant will need to be open for decades like probably 30 40 years before it pays for itself again and if the grid gets entirely replaced with other things that suddenly this gas plant isn't needed anymore then it's just going to be a a loss a straight complete waste of money yes yeah exactly yeah yeah and we know that we need to transition well before the time where that that plant will become profitable anyway. This is so silly. There's literally no part of it that makes any sense except that the government ideologically is committed to fossil fuels and can't think about anything else. economic management. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, so that's the news news. That's why this is in the story. That's why we've got a gas-led red curry this week. But I wanted to take a step back and look at gas and the role it plays in our power system more broadly. And as you mentioned, Zach, fossil fuel advocates use a lot of buzzwords to explain why we, quote, need more gas. For example, uh, this week Morrison said taxpayers would pay to build that gas-fired power plant if industry didn't back, quote, new dispatchable electricity generation. And so these are buzzwords like baseload, dispatchable, intermittent, load smoothing, transition fuel. And I wanted to break those down so that you, Zach, and listeners can interpret all of the bullshit and spin that you hear in the paper, uh, uh, that you read in the paper or hear on, on the radio. Excellent. I'll stop avoiding gas stories because I don't know what they're talking about after this, nice. hopefully. Nice. <laughs> and start avoiding them because they're just total bullshit. Just uh, listeners, actually, I've got a challenge for you. After this, go and listen to this week's episode of The Party Room, where Chris Yulman, uh, noted right-wing journalist, comes on and does all of this bullshit that I'm about to talk about. So uh, you can listen to it and test your new shut-the-fuck-up Chris Yulman uh, knowledge. So, yeah. Fun okay, fact, so- he missed out on Blur's take by the fucking skin of his teeth this it's- week. It's Luckily true. for him, we are already running massively over time. <laughs> but uh, cool. yeah, shit takes yeah. a bound. So energy generation basically comes in two sorts. The sort that takes a long time to start up and the ones that you can switch on and off really easily. And so you could think of that as like the difference between an oven and a microwave, right? Oven, you've got to turn on in advance, wait for it to heat up, and then you can use it. Microwave, you just press the button and it's on, and then when it finishes, it's off. Or like yeah. an oil Chad heater. microwave a virgin heater. oven. I, I know. Exactly. Yeah. That common... Uh, Duality. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so coal and nuclear power plants, not that we have nukes in Australia, but like it's the same. They take a long time and a lot of money to turn on and to start generating power. And then once they're on, they produce a very consistent amount. Um, It was a bit hard. I did a lot of reading of very dull reports for the story and still didn't manage to get an exact number. But turning on a coal power plant might cost four or five times how much it does once it's up and running. So say it mm. takes like 24 hours to turn it on, that'll cost like a week's worth of like uh, of operating costs. Gotcha. Uh, and also turning them on and off damages the hardware a lot more than just leaving it on because the heating up and the cooling causes stuff to warp. So the more often that you turn it on and off, the more often that you have to repair it. All right. Gotcha. So um, gas generation, on the other hand, works pretty much how a gas stove in your house works. You turn it on, it's on already, it doesn't take any time to heat up, the gas is burning, it's at 100%, and then when you turn it off, it's off, and it's just 
it's off and you don't have to do anything. And that's almost literally how gas-fired power plants work. They're basically a big gas stove that boils water and then the water turns, the steam turns a turbine. So it's, it's almost literally just a gas stove, uh, but like enormous, obviously. Okay, and so those are two types of generation and energy consumption comes in two equivalent types, right? So there's base load, which is how much is always being used. It's like the, the word is literal. It's at the base load of power consumption. And so in a city, you've always got like millions of buildings with the lights on, aircon running, people using appliances, businesses, whatever, whatever. That's the base load. And if you look at energy consumption charts for any period of time, it never drops below a certain level. And that's the base load. And it's different at different times. So the like minimum in- amount of power that, uh, that a society uses to function on a daily basis. Exactly. And so the energy grid always has to be producing and supplying that much. At least and the base load. Gotcha. At least the base load. And that's what coal and nuclear plants are really good for, right? You know they're always producing this exact same amount 24-7 every day of the year. You don't have to turn them off because you always need to be producing that base load amount. Great. Yep. Obviously, there's problems with global warming, but like that's the general <laughs> idea. Okay, and so ah, the other sort of energy consumption global is, warming. Yeah. The other sort of energy consumption is peak energy consumption. And this is when there's a spike or a peak, if you will. And so this happens regularly in summer um, when it's hot and everyone turns on the air conditioning. And every year, there's some amazing graphs of this. Um, five minutes after the grand final finishes, the AFL grand final finishes, three million people put on their kettles and open the fridge for a beer. And there's just this like <laughs> enormous spike. <laughs> I, I wasn't actually able to confirm this, but I'm fairly sure that is the largest spike in Victoria of power consumption literally every single year, which is very funny. Uh, boiling kettles is actually a super energy intense thing, which is kind of funny because it's so casual. Whatever. Yeah, it's but, always the but, thing that trips your breakers. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. And it's the same when like, it's the kettle that pushes when it's the, the entire uh, state as well. It, like, it trips the entire <laughs> Everyone state. Everyone puts grid. their kettle yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so baseload has been basically the most important type of power since like the 1700s when coal-fired power was invented. Um, but in modern Australia, the problem is the peaks. Uh, we often have more demand than we have generation capacity, and that means we get blackouts. So last summer in, in Melbourne, we had many days when the power just went out across multiple suburbs and was out for hours and hours. Blackouts mm. and brownouts. And this happens because there's not enough uh, power in the grid. And so fossil fuel advocates... Uh, advocates, sorry, say that we should build more gas power plants because they're, quote, dispatchable. So this is another important buzzword. And that means, as I said, you can be switched on really fast, generate some power during a peak, and then switch off again. So a gas plant might run every day for, like, the four hottest months of summer, right, when everyone's using the aircon around the clock. And then they might be off for most of the time and only turn on a few hours now and again for the rest of the year or something along those lines, right? Mm. Um, So they're only there to, like, deal with the peaks. And this is the advantage of having one of these, uh, quote, dispatchable energy sources that you can switch on and switch off without any difficulty is that you can, like, meet those peak demands really easily. Mm. So why wouldn't we use renewables for this? Well, as fossil fuels love to say, renewable energy generation is, quote, intermittent. And this is the classic Tone Abbott line of the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing, which in a literal sense is not true, uh, but in a practical sense (laughs) is. Um, (laughs) 
It yeah. might not be blowing right onto your fan, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it is actually a, a important concern for people who support renewables to have an answer to. Uh, but luckily we do. And the answer is storage. And so this is, like, literal batteries, like the Tesla one in South Australia, which is, uh, I hate to say it, but actually extremely cost-effective and efficient. And um, the first time it did its job, it Elon did it Musk so well. confirmed. Yeah, that's right. This is now a pro-Musk show. Um the first time it was switched on it did its job so quickly and efficiently that the grid operators thought there was a problem and like shut down something <laughs> uh because like it was like literally like milliseconds after there was this demand spike it started putting power out into the grid and the grid was like oh no we're getting some power that we didn't know that we were supposed to be getting oh shit alert alert um <laughs> yeah so it's actually too good which is very funny um but like batteries are uh very cost um intensive they've got a lot of like rare earth minerals and like we do, fuck elon musk and whatever whatever so those are, are two extremely are... good points of equal <laughs> oh, wait thank you yes <laughs> so uh there are things that are essentially batteries like uh hydro and so the idea is when you have an excess of renewable generation like in the middle of the day all the sunshine and all your solar powers making this, this energy you use that energy to pump water uphill and then when you don't have enough power being generated you let the water flow down through the turbines and generate power so it's basically a battery, but the battery is in the form of water. Up the kinetic energy stored in water being uphill. That's pretty exactly. fucking cool. It is pretty fucking cool. And there's lots of other ways to store renewable Potential uh, energy, maybe I meant to say. I don't know. I'm not a science yeah. guy. Yeah, I think it is pen- uh, potential energy. Whatever, yeah, yeah. I'm also not a science guy. Um, so there's other ways of doing basically the same thing, like lifting rocks with uh, with pulleys. It's the same as hydro, but instead of water, it's rocks. Uh, I don't think anyone actually uses that technology, but like, there's no reason why we shouldn't. I don't know about the snowy big rock 2.0. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Uh, flywheels, which are not actually a viable technology for an energy-heavy society, but are pretty cool. Molten salt storage, liquid hydrogen storage. And for more about hydrogen, see Climate Cookies. Our Climate Cookies episode put a link. Did you say and molten salt? Yeah, yeah. So basically the idea is you melt salt into a, like, basically lava uh, and then it stays really so hot for ages, and then you boil uh. water with it and turn turbines. Um, there's a, I like a, that a, one. Yeah, me too. And there's a, a cool type of power plant called a, a thermal solar energy, TSE. Uh, there was a proposal to build one in Australia, but it seems like it's never going to happen, unfortunately. They're pretty uh, speculative at the moment. There's, there's one running in Spain, I think, and they're not um, widely used technology. But yeah, molten mm-hmm. salt storage, totally a thing. Liquid hydrogen, yeah. And there's other, an opportunity oh, oh. to dress up the big salt silo as a massive salt shaker. As, so, you know, bring That's joy to the true. local community, add yep. tourism benefits as well. The I art can see. Community. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, That's where I employ all the local artists. I, I feel like there's lots of things in favor of the big salt shaker yeah. form of, <laughs> of energy at the moment. I'm convinced. Cool. Yeah, it's personally my favorite one, literally. Uh, yeah, Tholosermal generation is my favorite one, but um, it's yeah probably not going to happen in Australia for at least a couple more decades. Uh, yeah, so these are all ways of making renewable energy dispatchable, right? So that you can just like pour that water down that hill or drop that rock whenever yeah. you need. Um, boom, and put the so, kettle on, no worries. Exactly. So there's no reason to use gas for it instead. Um, and it's also, it's kind of sick because Scott Morrison says that it's actually the Snowy Hydro Corporation that's going to pay to build the gas plant. Yeah, uh, I saw which, that. What the fuck? 
It's just because, like, they're a useful corporation who is already investing in energy sector, and it's not a specifically renewable one. It's not, like, the Renewable Energy Agency or whatever. It's just, like, a government agency that's doing energy stuff, so Mm. they're the ones that's going to do it. It's pretty gross. I feel like I read, and I didn't look into this too much, so I might be misspeaking here, but I Mm. feel like Angus Taylor was trying to make the Renewable Energy Agency contribute to new gas power. Gas stuff as well, yeah. And and that might end up happening. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, like, it, it, we'll see. Uh, God, like, even when they have the fucking, like, infrastructure the <laughs> ready to support a renewable energy transition, they're still yeah, yeah. bending it, bending over backwards to try and make it about fossil fuels. These the way the government circles. normally try to do that is by, say, talking about, like, oh, technology agnostic, technology neutral, or whatever. So we can't guarantee it's going to be renewables. Oh, what a surprise. You're investing in it gas. Happens oh. to be gas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's the that's the issue about dispatchable. It's really not relevant. Um, there's also other options for baseload renewable generation, like geothermal and tidal power, but they have other problems, and I don't really want to talk about them just now. But just sort of, I, I thought I'd mention that there's other options for different types of renewable power generation that will like affect our grid differently. Uh, there's this other option as well to deal with peaks, right? So that we could um, replace gas or not use a gas plant. So if we don't need to deal with the peaks, then we can not build this plant. Again, I don't think we need to build it anyway with the peaks, but like that's what the argument is. So other ways to deal with it is um, this idea called peak smoothing or load smoothing. And this basically means giving people incentives not to consume power. Normally, it's for households, which is shit because it should be for industry. But basically, mm. if you can suffer through the heat without using aircon, you get a discount on your power bills. Isn't Okay, isn't that already how it works? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. And it's to deal with this issue of peaks. As, as in, in like, like, if I don't turn on my aircon, I lose you pay less. power and therefore gotcha. my bill is No, no, smaller. as in, if you don't use it for, like, six hours during a peak that you've been alerted by, then you get, like, 5% off the rest of your bills. Gotcha. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I check with your power supply company about the particular details of that, but yeah. Uh, and yeah, it would be better to make, like, I don't know, fucking the aluminium smelter uh, operate from, yeah, 3am to, to 9am or something instead of making like people who can't afford their power bills suffer through the heat but like whatever i'm just saying there's like other options about peak smoothing that would deal with this issue as well no you're saying you hate economic progress and you want the economy to tank that is true but it wasn't what i was saying just now um (laughs) (laughs) yeah so anyway that's uh that is baseload dispatchable peak smoothing uh what else what else would we do uh, uh, intermittent Base generation uh, yeah tra- oh, we didn't do transition fuel and this one is the most bullshit of them all uh, because this is basically saying that we need gas to not do global warming um, and I haven't really touched on the climate stuff because I imagine that most of our listeners are pretty much on board with the more fossil fuels doesn't make sense thing but in brief Burning gas makes about 60% of the global warming as coal does, which is kind of a significant reduction. But because gas plants need to be open for decades before they make a profit, that 60% is still more than enough to condemn human civilization to a fiery doom. Yeah. So basically, uh, in summary, the argument for (laughs) uh, new gas plants is 
just transparently uh, an attempt total to throw garbage. a bone to the fossil fuel industry, or total garbage, uh, instead of the stated aims of improving our energy grid and helping the economy, which, if that's what we wanted to do, we'd build more renewables, we'd build more storage, and we'd give industry incentives to change their consumption patterns. Uh, and we also wouldn't be weirdly strong-arming industry into building a plant that they inevitably won't do, and then the government will have to charge pa- taxpayers for it, and then it won't make enough money. So, yes, uh, key points in summary. Gas-led recovery is actually to help the gas industry, not anyone else. Two, the energy grid does not need new gas. Three, the things that gas power supposedly can do can be achieved with renewables. And four, gas will kill us as surely as coal, if maybe slightly slower. Well, thanks. That was actually, that was super helpful. I feel like I have a much better understanding of the issue now. Nice. Uh, Let me know how you go with that Chris Yulman interview and... uh, if you thought he made any good points. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good idea, yeah. Maybe you can be next week's blessed take. Uh, mm. I do enjoy telling him to shut the fuck up. Look, to be quite honest, I thought he was restrained. I think he must think... I think he must have, like, come around a bit on global warming over the last six months or so. Uh, because, like, although he's still clearly a right-wing shill, he's a bit more equivocating about it. So, you know, hey, baby Take steps. it where you can get it. I mean, he's been mm. spending most of his, like, blessed take points on insisting that people die to open up the economy uh, yeah, you know, during the corona pandemic. So uh, he's probably, he's busy dedicating his shit-taking energy elsewhere. Uh, but yeah, thanks okay. for that, Noon. That was, uh, that was really clear and... Um, very informative and I'm glad. i feel just a little bit smarter nice i hope you too and the smart guy noon and the smart guy i hope you feel a little bit smarter too listeners thank you very much for tuning in this week uh we wanted to give a special thanks to two people who left reviews for us this week on apple Podcasts, which we love that helps people find the show and uh, we love it when our rating goes up and we like to read nice things about ourselves That's for example true. this review from carly which says, five stars for Bagel and Dante. Came for the politics, stayed for the memes, the immaculate stings, and of course, the pup dates. And listeners, if you don't know, pup date is our new segment that we do at the very end of the show. So stick around for our, our pup date in a minute. Yeah, it's a uh, reward and- for listening to us talk about ourselves <laughs> for two minutes at the end of the show. Uh, and now uh, we've also got one from Miardi. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but they say, get around it. Five stars. A must listen for anyone interested in lefty takes on Australian politics or just fans of expertly crafted segment theme songs, which nice. That's very sweet. That nice is to get a little, bit of, a little and, bit of love on my stings. Yeah. And I, I got to say, Zach, we, we talked about the stings a lot for the first like couple months we did the show, but I really like them. Every time I listen back to the show, I enjoy them. You do a great job. So thank you. Uh, and, thanks very and much. I often just like throw you one being like, hey, what about this? And then you put it together. So yeah, thanks. Yeah. I appreciate well, that. I appreciate that particular your ideas aspect of your and inspiration. Hmm. Thank you. I did my best. I taught myself what compression is for this podcast. <laughs> <So> <laughs> hopefully you guys are all uh, getting ni- those nice compressed sounds. Um... So if you like the show, stings. oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, we've got a bit more to do before the pup date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get it. We're, we're almost there. The business end is almost over. If you like the show, please leave, leave us a review. The best place to do it is Apple Podcasts, but anywhere else you can do it is appreciated as well, including on Facebook. Please share us across your socials if you uh, want to tell your friends about us. That would be awesome. You can also hit that follow button on Spotify. Apparently that helps. Subscribe to us at wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Also, and, uh, if you if- want to... 
if you want to, if you've got something you want to talk about, you can record yourself speaking for about a minute and email it to us at ozpulsnackpot at gmail.com and we'll play it on the show. So yeah, we love it when we get those potlucks. So if you have something that you're passionate about or if we got something wrong or if we didn't go into enough detail or whatever, send us a potluck. If you saw a meme that you really fucking like, we don't get enough meme-related potlucks. Mm, so yeah, That's hit, true. Hit us up. Yeah, write in or speak in we appreciate it um and if you really like the show and you want to support us financially we'd love that you can do it over on patreon for as little as one us dollar a month just google ospol snack pod patreon if you want to pay a little bit more money you get more stuff so definitely recommend going checking it out if you want to support what we do okay business over it's time for that sting now it's time for a birthday i still feel quite in sheepish and embarrassed about this one uh, i'm not <laughs> sure thing. why but I've, i I've, i just feel like i have such a piddly singing voice you know mm. anyway tell tell me about what your dog's been up to yeah okay so bagel's been fine this week there's not a huge amount of stories but i just sort of do a follow-up on my pup date from last time you remember i installed a deadbolt to avoid having to a like shin run level. half naked out of my room uh, early remember. in the morning and i've been waiting i also learned that you go to sleep in just a t-shirt and nothing else which is yeah. interesting. Yeah, sometimes. It, I change it up, you know. Uh, or, or sometimes I start <laughs> wearing more clothes and wake up wearing less. Yeah, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. who knows? Bit of a That's, mystery. Magical mystery yeah. to her. Mm. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought and I was just thinking about You, you installed a deadbolt in I saw it, I installed a bit of it. And, and I've been waiting. I've been Because Bagel did it, like, bashed out of my room, I think it was three times in two weeks uh, last last month. And... I've just been waiting for him to do it again. Because although I don't enjoy him injuring himself, I think it will be extremely funny to see him bash his head through the door and fail to open it. Uh, but also, I just want to, like, you know, check that the system works and so on. But he has unfortunately been an extremely good boy and not attempted to break out. So I wonder if he actually knows about the deadbolt. Have you seen me, like, accidentally <laughs> open it when it's shut? And he's like, oh, I can't open the door anymore. Or if it's just like he hasn't heard that cat or whatever recently. So, eh. Clever uh, boy. Follow-ups. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And what's up with Big D? Well, on the subject of uh, low-key enjoying the sight of your dog experiencing pain. Um... That's not exactly what I said, <laughs> but sure. <laughs> um, I, uh, I I enjoy giving Dante like so we've got to deal with Dante where he's like he's obsessed with food and basically when we first got him it was almost impossible to eat around him because mm. he would just physically get up on your face and jump on you and eat stuff off your plate and so basically the deal that we made with him we trained him to understand that you can lick our plates at the end of our meals if you are good and don't hassle us before that which. Is, That's a pretty good deal. Uh, it's a basically a good system. It still means that he sits there, like staring at you unblinkingly for the entire time that it takes. I you just to eat want your you meal. to know I'm being a good boy right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, so yesterday uh, I was having a cup of noodles for lunch because I'm an extremely responsible adult. Hot and spicy mm-hmm. flavor. Uh, it's a really good flavor. And Dante was sitting very patiently, being like, "I can't wait to get my leftovers." And I was like, "I don't know if I." Should let you have this foam cup. This seems like a bad idea. Sure. So we sort of compromised, and I just like held it out to him to let him lick the spicy juice off the inside of the noodle cup. And I love giving Dante spicy stuff because even though it's clearly very spicy for him, he just can't stop eating it. 
He'll take a couple licks and then he has to just sit back and like lick his chops frantically for like 10 seconds being like, ah, ah, so spice, so spice. And then he goes back. He's like, give him like a little also... bit of milk with it or something or soy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes in for wash more. Wash it down. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I've, if I, if I've had a little bit of sriracha on my plate, I'm always like, oh, I can't wait to give this to Dante and watch him <laughs> <laughs> take one lick, lick his chops to 10 seconds and then go back in for more. Cause he can't stop. Yeah, he has no, to have the whole so spicy thing. lab gene. Yeah. 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 So that's what Dante's been up to, licking the spicy noodle cup. You know how it is. I do. I do know about licking spicy noodle cups. All right. I think that's enough for this week. Thank you, all listeners. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, terrible politicians of Australia. Uh, Thank you very much for tuning in, and make sure that you keep on snacking in the free world. Crunch, crunch. <laughs>